the center right, with its advocacy for free markets, has not actually made the case to a new generation of why capitalism remains valuable. And that is why you see so much interest in socialism. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Muzerg and I am once again your host for this show. In today's episode, we are going to focus on millennials and their impact on the political debate on both sides of the Atlantic. Joining me today is Kristen Soltis-Anderson pollster, speaker, and commentator. She is the co-founder of public opinion firm Echelon Insight, and for what is of immediate interest to us today, the author of The Selfie Vote, a book that was published in 2015 and that still has much resonance today as we approach yet another presidential election in the United States. Kristen was also one of our four guests back in May during our coronavirus episode, which you should definitely check out if you are new to the show. Kristen, Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Kristen, it is really great to have you here to talk about millennials because I have to confess that when I myself was writing my book, The Great Class Shift, a few years ago, I did get a lot of inspiration, numbers and half facts from your book, which are, in which I define millennials as actually one of the four classes that are defining not only US, but the, our Western political landscapes. So I think it will be uh, super interesting here to kind of compare our two analyses so that we can get a good picture of what is common and what is also different on both sides of the pond when we talk about millennial politics. Let's use the full title of your book as the starting point of our discussion. Uh, as I mentioned, it came out in 2015 and it's called The Selfie Vote, where millennials are leading America and how Republicans can keep up. Now, obviously, during the Obama years, there was already a sense that the Republicans were uh, really losing ground with this segment of, of the electorate. There was actually a time, long time ago, when Republicans actually had an advantage over the youth vote and the 2000s had the uh, uh, vote split between 50-50 between Republicans and uh, Democrats. But uh, since the election of Barack Obama, this has really shifted to a clear imbalance in the uh, to the Democrats' advantage. And the more time goes, the less attractive the Republican Party and actually center-right parties across Europe seem to be for young people. Uh, the Democrats versus Republican gap now seems to be around uh, 65-35%. Taking two examples here, in France in 2017, less than 10% voted for the main center-right candidate François Fillon, who didn't go through to the second round. Uh, while in uh, uh, Poland, you had exactly the same result for uh, Andrzej Duda, who went on to win the second round. So, we usually find these people not only, you know, on, on the left of the political spectrum, but actually it's very left with the uh, Bernie Sanders movement defined by very high millennial activism. And we could say the same in Europe for Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Podemos and the other left wing movements. Christian, here's my question. What happened? Is it simply that the, the GOP and maybe center right parties in Europe didn't listen to 
your advice and therefore has not been capable of adapting its platform and message to a new demographic? Or is there something more profound, a sort of incompatibility between the millennial vote and the center-right on both sides of the pond? It's a great question. And, and I think it's important to start out by noting that young people are not always inherently more politically progressive. Uh, there's a, in the U.S., there's a, a, actually folks attribute this quote to Winston Churchill a lot, which is to say, they say, oh, well, if you're young and conservative, you have no heart. And if you're old and liberal, you have no brain. The idea being, well, if you are young and conservative, you are unusual. That most people start off very progressive, and then as reality hits them, they become more conservative over time. But there's a lot of data that suggests that's not always the case, um, that you've had plenty of instances where young people were the heart and soul of driving conservatism. You know, Ronald Reagan in the United States won over young voters by large margins during the course of his presidency, especially in his reelection. So there's no reason why inherently young people must always be heavily leaning more toward the progressive side. What I think has happened in our current moment is a product of two things, one of which is specific to the U.S. and one of which I think stretches across the Atlantic to from the Republican Party to center-right parties in Europe. The element that I think is specific to the U.S. context is the social and cultural issues piece, um, which I think these conversations play out very differently in the U.S. compared to Europe. But on issues like LGBT rights, issues where we're talking about race. Um, these are issues where younger voters just have a very different worldview than older voters, and that worldview tends to line up more with where Democrats are at. Back when I was originally writing the selfie vote, uh, the question of gay marriage had, I think, just been ruled on by the Supreme Court, but it was still very much a hot button. That issue has sort of been set aside now. Most of the conversation here in the U.S. is around transgender rights. Um, but nonetheless, both race and LGBT issues have created a big roadblock between the GOP and younger voters here in the U.S. context. I think the issue that stretches across the Atlantic is the economic piece of the puzzle. That for millennials, who I define as those born in the 1980s or sort of the first half of the 1990s, they were largely coming of age, entering their careers, beginning their families, starting off in life around the time of the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, around the time that Barack Obama came on the scene. And I think that since then, you know, there was the global economic recovery that was slow, that still left a lot of young people behind. Meanwhile, they're facing things like high tuitions. We've seen student debt become a big rallying cry in countries like the UK, as well as in the United States, um, I think there is just a sense that the center-right, with its advocacy for free markets, has not actually made the case to a new generation of why capitalism remains valuable. And that is why you see so much interest in socialism. Now, it is not the case that young people these days want to see the government seize the means of production. Uh, that is broadly not what I see young people calling for. But instead, they believe that if they work hard and play by the rules, that there's not necessarily a guarantee that they'll get ahead. Uh, and that they, they believe that the things like cost of living, economic challenges, are why they may not be living a better life than their parents or grandparents did. And so I think the center rights uh, you know, love for the free market has not been accompanied with an, any messaging or explaining of how capitalism can lift people out of poverty, why markets are good, 
And so as a result, they are sort of speaking to an audience without realizing that there's harder work to be done to explain their point of view. They just take for granted that people want the capitalist system to continue. And I think that has led to big problems for center-right parties who just can't talk effectively about their economic agenda to a generation that has felt broadly that the market has left them behind. Talking about the disconnect between the messaging of, <clears throat> of the center-right, uh, the worldview of the millennials, when I remember when I, I first read your book, I was really struck by how you showed that the worldview or the values of the millennials were actually not shaped by ideological indoctrination, but actually by experience. And you, you talked about it just now. I mean, student debt is a real problem for many young households. Attitudes towards ethnic and uh, sexual min minorities are obviously shaped by the fact that American demographics are changing and that it has become easier to come out as LGBT in, in our societies. Millennials have also a different view on property because they don't have much access to it, right, due to uh, high property prices, repaying student uh, loans, etc. I mean, we get to a, an issue here. Is the generation Y completely different from any other generations before? And you, you mentioned the young people getting on board the Reagan coalition. Is there a hope for, uh, at least for the, the people on the center-right, that naturally these uh, millennials will, quote, grow up, end of quote, and, and naturally go back to the center-right or go to the center-right? Or, or is this going to be much more complicated? I think it's going to be more complicated. The scary version of the story would go that in governments around the world, uh, far left uh, folks take power, implement policy agendas, they fail to work, and that sort of disillusioned millennials who are now in their 30s and headed into their 40s at that point decide, oh, we tried these things, they didn't work, maybe let's try something else, and that gives an opportunity. That's the most pessimistic view, is that it would require the failure of, of far left governments and policies in order to bring them around. What I would rather see on the more positive and uplifting side would be for center-right parties to understand the values that are driving young voters. As you mentioned, this is not just about ideology. If you ask young people what their ideology is, while there is a, a sizable chunk that would consider themselves to be liberal or progressive, the bulk are still considering themselves to be somewhat moderate. They just are, want to be pragmatic and see things work and function. But the values that drive them, I think, are important to talk about. So there's a, an excellent book by somebody named Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist here in the U.S., and he writes about the values that underlie people's beliefs and how, how we determine what is good and what is right and wrong drive so many of our political views. And he notes that for political conservatives, there are a lot of different values at play. We may think something is right or wrong because it's fair or unfair. We may think it's right or wrong because it is not keeping with tradition. It's breaking with tradition. It's not adhering to authority. It's, you know, you shouldn't break the law because that's wrong to do. Or it's not loyal. You know, why aren't you being loyal to the flag? Why aren't you pledging allegiance? Those sorts of things. For progressives, it's much more limited to the values of fairness and caring. Is somebody being treated fairly and equitably? And is somebody being harmed or not? And there's no judgment here on which of these values is right or wrong or more important. These are all good things to, to care about. But it, I tend to find young voters are most motivated by the questions of caring and fairness, which are the values that the political left is most comfortable talking about because that tends to be the values that motivate them. 
So in conservatives, let's take an example, like here in the US, there's a lot of debate right now. And I know this is now spreading globally because the Black Lives Matter movement has really, you know, sort of caught fire and, and energized a lot of folks around the world. The, the question of athletes kneeling during things like the national anthem, using that moment to make sort of a silent protest, uh, calling for greater racial equality. There's a lot of debate in the US about, well, isn't that disrespecting the flag? And isn't it morally wrong to disrespect the flag? And you'd find a lot of young people who they may not choose to kneel themselves, but think, hey, you've got the right to do so, which stands in contrast to many older conservative Americans who outright think it's wrong and shouldn't be allowed. And so these are the kinds of cultural and values debates that I think conservatives and those on the center right need to understand. We, have, we can't just speak in terms of tradition or the way things have gone in the past. We need to be better about explaining why we believe what we believe in terms of caring and fairness. Why do we believe capitalism is best to care for people? Why do we believe that liberty creates the fairest society? These are things that we need to explain more effectively rather than just assuming that a young generation understands intuitively what we mean. Mm -hmm. you, you, you took a, a sort of optimistic scenario and allow me to be the advocate of the devil here and, and transport us into a, a pessimistic scenario which involves the, the far left. You, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement, which was actually a very very broad movement in the in, in the United States and the, the followers in in Europe have also been mostly uh, a mainstream but uh, when we when we look back at this episode and and what has happened over the past four years on on campuses in the US but also in France and the and the UK it really seems that millennial politics or at least parts of it uh, has gone more radical and and although we we have seen people, you know, going into mainstream demonstrations. We've also seen uh, a, a lot of other more more violent protests in which young people and, and, and sometimes very young people have been systematically in the center uh, of these fringe events. I mean, I'm just going to mention a couple of, uh, of, of examples, the, the taking down of statues in places like Baltimore and Maryland or, or, or Bristol in, in, in the UK and other attempts in, in France, Belgium and the United Kingdom. Uh, and of course, you, you, you mostly saw young people among the, the demonstrators in places like, like Portland, where, where things really have turned nasty this uh, 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 this early summer. So, I mean, is this just an impression or are young voters indeed becoming more radical, more extreme? Um, and maybe we can hear talk about the, the next generation the, who are going to be voting for the first time, the, the zillennials. How do we account for this? Is it the result of experience, specific social problem uh, or, or increased polarization, something completely different? What do you think? So at least in the U.S. context, I would separate out millennials from Generation Z. So if millennials are those born in the 1980s all the way up through the mid-90s, it's Generation Z are those born in the latter half of the 1990s and into the 2000s. And so it is the year 2020. Nowadays, there are plenty of folks who are eligible to vote who are born not in the last millennium, but in this millennium. You know, they are they were born in the year 2000, 2001. They were born, you know, after September 11th, and they'll be eligible to vote in this presidential election. And I think that while in general, when I do surveys asking millennials and Gen Z about their politics, they tend to be pretty similarly ideologically inclined. They have similar views on issues like climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Where the biggest gap emerges is one, that Gen Z tends to have even more progressive views than millennials on issues like LGBT rights and race. 
But then second, I think there's something about the overall environment and approach to politics that was in vogue when you came of age that matters. So for millennials, most of their young political life came about during the Obama era, which was about hope, change. He talked a lot about let's reach across the aisle, let's have bipartisanship. Just as an example, I mean, recall that during the Obama administration, there was an infamous incident where a black Harvard professor was trying to enter his own home. He had lost his keys and the police kind of accosted him and thought he was breaking into his own home. Clearly, there's some racial bias there. Why is this, et cetera, man trying to break into his house? And the Obama response was to have the beer summit, right? Let's have the police officer and this professor come to the White House and we'll sit down over a beer and we'll talk through our differences. And so I think millennials sort of came up in this era where things were a little more, hey, let's sit down and talk about our differences. Maybe we can come to consensus. Generation Z is not coming up in that world. They're coming up in a world where it is Trump, it is clash, it is fight to the death, it is not just I want to have more votes than my opponent, but it is I want to destroy my opponent. And I think for me, that makes me more concerned about Generation Z. This is perhaps me just being a millennial trying to defend my own generation. But I think we take a bit more of a pragmatic let's all try to come to a consensus type approach, where I think for Generation Z, it is much more prone to either going to the extremes left or right. And this idea that it's not just that you're wrong, it's that you're a bad person and you don't deserve a platform. You don't deserve to speak. That is quite concerning. And I would also say this will be my second time citing Jonathan Haidt in this podcast, but he has another book called The Coddling of the American Mind, which actually doesn't go after young voters, but rather goes after adults for sort of fostering a climate where young people are more prone to the kinds of behaviors that you've seen turn into some of the more some of the more bad outcomes that we've seen come from these protests. Of course, tons of, of wonderful things come from it, lots of folks getting engaged and activated. But of course, you've seen some folks who've taken it too far or have pushed for unproductive things. Um, and to the extent those are young people, a lot of that I think is driven by a culture on campus that has changed dramatically over the last couple of years, in part because of these behaviors that Haidt talks about in his book. I have to confess, I also read Haidt's book, and it is a really a super read, a very easy read. So I too recommend the read for sure. But let's get back to your book, Kristen, because I think on page 136, to be precise, you are hitting a really important feature of uh, millennials sociology. And here we'll get back to millennials uh, and, and their voting patterns. Um, because although we, we tend to see them as a, as a block, millennials actually do not always, and zillennials actually, do not always vote the same way. And university education seems to have something to do with that. The sentence that really struck me in your book, and I think I quote it in mine, is, is this, young people with a degree can't find good jobs. Young people without degrees can't find jobs at all. Now, this is written in the post-Great Recession era, but I feel that we're going to go through exactly the same experience and the same problem now in the post-COVID uh, uh, recovery. Here we seem to have a real divide between educated young millennials and zillennials who are going to struggle to get a job or to get a good job and to uh, go up the, the, the social ladder. But... Uh, those without a college degree uh, in places like the Midwest, Appalachia, uh, or Northeastern France, East Germany, you name it, these people's future is simply non-existent. Is this where the dividing line between the 
woke millennials, end of quote, uh, we just talked about and the, the rightist millennial stand because there are millennials and zillennials who vote on the right and like their counterparts on the left, they usually are also more radical in their views. So I would suggest, uh, uh, well, there's a few things. One is that a lot of times I will get asked, well, isn't the reason why the millennial generation now leans left is because they all got you know, brainwashed by college professors is, is a question that I get asked a lot. And I always have to remind people that the bulk of millennials did not get a four-year college degree. They went to community college, maybe they took a couple classes, but they didn't finish, or they just said, look, college isn't for me. Um, that so often those who work in, work in politics and media are surrounded by those who at least have a four-year degree, if not some kind of graduate degree, that it's hard for them to wrap their minds around the fact that a majority don't have that. So you cannot just say that the reason why young people lean more leftward is because college professors have gotten to them. However, I would also note that it is easier nowadays with the advent of social media for something that was sort of confined to the academic world or uh, was something that was first sort of promulgated on college campuses to spread more widely. Somebody who it, a decade or two ago might not have you know, heard about different ways of looking at history or different ways of thinking about race um, that are getting talked about on college campuses or promoted on college campuses, it's now much more easy for those ideas to spread through social media. So on the one hand, I, I don't just chalk it up to the college environments or pushing folks more left because you do see these views also taking hold outside of, of the college environment. But I certainly think that there is something to be said for the idea that a lot of this starts on campuses. And I, I think the hype book lays it out pretty well why. I do wonder if during the COVID era, we're going to see whether we're going to walk away from this with an economic crisis that means folks feel even more compelled to have a degree. If we're going to see the same sorts of dynamics that we saw in 2008, where those with a degree struggled to find a good job, but those who didn't have a degree were struggling to find a job at all. Or the flip side, you know, you have many colleges and universities now that are still charging full tuition, but have told students do not come to campus. You will be taking classes online for at least the first semester, if not for the full year. But please, by all means, write us this check of tens of thousands of dollars for your tuition payment. How many students will simply go, this doesn't seem worth it to me? Um, that the value of a college degree, I think, in the decade since the financial crisis some have questioned, do I really need a college degree or is this just a very expensive piece of paper that isn't helping me? And I think as Gen Z really thinks through that, I would expect Gen Z to be the most educated generation we've had in the US, but it also wouldn't surprise me if at least for the next year or two, there isn't a little bit of questioning of, gosh, I have to pay that much money and I, I don't even get the college experience. I just am watching videos online. That doesn't seem like a very good value proposition to me. So we may leave COVID with a very different assessment of what the value of a college education looks like. Mm, and that might lead to uh, a reassessment of, of manual and care working, which is uh, at the heart of David Goodhart's uh, new book, which is going to, to come out in a couple of months. And uh, uh, we'll make sure that we'll, we'll have a, a discussion with him about this. Uh, but getting back to our to our discussion about millennials, and uh, one thing that you talked about a few minutes ago was, uh, to which I completely agree with, is is the idea that uh, millennials and zillennials are 
dissatisfied with the status quo that they are and i think you know this the process of radicalization that we're seeing with generation z is showing that there is an increased dissatisfaction with the way democracy is doing when we at iri released our, our global democracy research with fondapol last year one of the, the big findings that we saw was how much young people all over Europe and the US have become more skeptical about democracy and sometimes you know supporting other other forms of government that are not necessarily democratic I, I know this looks like looking into a crystal ball but looking at things right now do you see a way in which we manage to get millennials millennials and, and particularly the, the, the younger ones right into mainstream politics on the left but also on the right or should we just get used to live with a radical generation? I truly believe that we we have to be careful not to assume that the loudest voices are the most representative. You know, there are certainly loud loud voices on the far left here in the United States and around the world that would say democracy doesn't work, free markets don't work, the liberal small l liberal tradition doesn't work. What we need is something that looks much more like government control etc that that these systems are are just they're they're set up to keep the entrenched power in power we need to throw them out and start over these are minority viewpoints and and i would not just say minority viewpoints but they are not widely held um in any data that i have ever seen for the most part in the united states for instance young voters quite like our constitution they appreciate that it protects their rights that they view America as a work in progress that is constantly striving to get better that we are not perfect that our system is not perfect but that we are in a constant state of improvement and that is very different from the very minority held view of let's throw the whole system out so i think you know on social media these voices get amplified a lot because they run counter to what people expect uh they get a lot of media attention but i've not seen a great deal of data that suggests to me that when millennials and gen z say they're frustrated with the status quo that they believe the prescription is radical dismantling of everything that we know you know i did some focus groups last summer of young people here in the us specifically asking them about things like capitalism and socialism and it was fascinating to ask so many young people who would say oh yes i would love to see our system replaced with socialism and then you ask them what they mean by that and what they mean by that is a slightly more uh generous welfare state uh a slightly more robust safety net they're not looking for the government to confiscate huge chunks of wages certainly not their own wages they're not looking for private companies to be put out of business and replaced by state owned enterprises so a lot of the conversation at the extremes is not actually representative of where most young people are at they're hungry for change but that doesn't necessarily mean I don't believe that they are looking to burn society down and start from scratch. I am running out of time, so I'm afraid this is going to be my final question, but and this time is going to be more focused on on right now and on this election cycle in the in the US. So we've seen 2 years ago that many new candidates uh were fielded by Democrats but also Republicans for Senate and congressional seats. Many of them were actually millennials. Obviously Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes to mind on the Democrat side but also people like Dan Crenshaw on the Republican side and and many others right and and often these people are veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Crenshaw is actually one of them 
it's obviously too early to tell, but despite some media flare-ups, what we've seen is that uh, many of these newly elected officials uh, have actually been more willing to talk together and seek compromise than their elders from the previous generation, despite coming from radically different viewpoints. And and, and that's a paradox, right? As politics in the country are otherwise becoming more uh, uh, divisive and the, the, the same is true in uh, in Europe. Is, is that a trend that you see lasting in the long term, sort of revenge of the of the millennials so to speak which that, that would be a good thing right because uh, uh we're about to witness a generational change uh, at all levels in the coming election cycles or is it just a one-time reaction by freshers to a, a very divided congress that well that is not going to last beyond their, their their first terms i think for a lot of younger members of congress they are very cognizant that there is a long a lot of time ahead of them where they will be able to make an impact in politics. And so they're quite keen to build good relationships and find interesting examples where they can partner with folks from the other side. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, I think it's Generation Z that is more likely to take the dug in, you know, viewing uh, politics as, as total war sort of position where I think millennials, again, we come from this, this tradition of Let's all work together. Let's all think of this as a group project, et cetera. So I think you are seeing that reflected in the behavior of the millennial legislators that we're seeing in many places across the country. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that they are ideologically moderate. Dan Crenshaw is among the most conservative members of the House. Obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is quite progressive. But even she will look for opportunities to find partnerships with some on the Republican side around certain things like civil liberties, et cetera, areas that don't sort of fit neatly along partisan lines. So I, I think it is something that is quite characteristic of the millennial generation to want to have that, let's find areas where we can work together. And my hope is that when Gen Z enters the political scene and gets elected to office, that they will uh, carry on that tradition uh, as well. Well, I think we're going to end on this very optimistic note. Uh, many thanks to you, Christian Soltis Anderson, for joining us on the, on the show. And uh, thank you also for all the great work you have done and continue to do with IRI as a trainer and as a speaker. We really value the work that you do with us to train the leaders of today and tomorrow across the world and to get our friends across the Atlantic and beyond to better understand what is going on in the United States at the moment. If you'd like to know more about Kristen's work, I invite you first to read her book, The Selfie Boat, which is still available in all good libraries and online shops. Uh, you should also check her website, uh, www.kristensoltisanderson.com, and of course, her Twitter account, which is at ksoltisanderson. For those of you who can tune in to US stream television, she also hosts a weekly polling TV show on Fox Nations, which is called What Are the Odds? Uh, and I suspect this is going to get quite quite a following in the coming month. So I encourage you to take it out uh, at www.nation.foxnews.com slash what are the odds. And of course, while you're in on the internet, you should also take the time to visit IRI's website, www.iri.org to check out what we do to promote democracy around the world. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides
provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Stanislava Stachova, Hannah Mont, and Sam Johannes for producing this program. We will be back in a couple of weeks with an episode about China's influence in Europe and beyond with my next guest, Marike Olberg, co-author of Hidden Hand, exposing how the Communist Party is reshaping the world. And that will be just out. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. And of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Talk to you soon.